Stupid Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 290 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've been trying to get better at breathing. Yeah? Well, 40 odd years in, Mickey, why not? It's going to become harder, I believe. (laughs) I genuinely think it's a thing that is going to kill me. Sometimes I just sort of forget how to actually get oxygen into my lungs or just stop altogether and then choke. I've told Gary to tell people I died rescuing a kitten from up a tree, but it will just be because I forgot how to breathe. But I did a breathwork workshop. Is this for exercise or is this genuinely just so that you remember to breathe properly? (laughs) It's supposed to be a good sort of all-round well-being exercise to do. So it's it was at my gym, but it wasn't about kind of physical exercise. Okay. Although it is really quite physical, but it's good for if you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed out or you might choke if you don't remember how to breathe properly, all of those things. I have to say, Lyra does that all the time because she's realised that it up, like basically upsets me. She just goes, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong, what's wrong? And then she looks at me and she smiles and I think, you little shit. <laughs> I can assure you mine isn't attention-seeking, Jen. Good, glad to hear it, glad uh-huh. to hear it. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and for once, I have too many fats. Too many fats. Are you going to give us your top three? I was going to say, hit us with at least one, Hannah. Okay, I went to Portugal at the weekend and it was so sunny that I had to buy sunglasses and the Portuguese all still had their coats on. (laughs) I love it when that happens. Also, Hannah, obviously we knew you were going to Portugal. You went on Thursday night and on Friday morning, Portugal started trending on Twitter X and I thought, if there's been a fucking earthquake. (laughs) But that happened. It was something to do with football. It's funny because I saw it trending on Twitter and I thought oh that's because I'm in Portugal (laughs) the natural reaction for anyone to have so I didn't even bother checking what it was so yeah that's fact number one fact number two was I went to the theatre I had Woody Harrelson day came and went and it was very very exciting it was really good I don't think you can get a ticket so I won't tell people to get tickets in fact it might nearly be over now went to see the Ulster American and he was brilliant Woody Harrelson was brilliant Andy Serkis was fucking hilarious. Like, people were rolling in the aisles laughing. He was so funny. And I should mention Louisa Harlan because she was holding her own in all of that. So that's fact number two. My nephew was like, this is amazing. He was having the best time. And then fact number three, my brother notices that four rows in front of us are setting Brian Cranston as Sam Rockwell. Incredible scenes. Yeah. And my nephew was, well, yeah, beside himself. With excitement. Just on a breaking bad note, my mum's husband, stepdad, hashtag two, Brian, the lovely Brian, come and he got an ear infection and he's been told to steam, get over a bowl of steam with some sort of mentholated crystals in there. And my mum will not stop referring to it as crystal meth. And it makes me laugh every <laughs> single time. We went to three chemists and none of them sold crystal meth. <laughs> oh, and. That's like when my mum asked for a letter of notoriety from a shift. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and last week my daughter said something so offensive I actually had to quite sternly tell her off. Shall we have a guess of what it was? <laughs> I don't I don't think you'll guess, actually. Did she call you? No, I'll tell you I'm i I'm just gonna save you the the hassle because I don't think you're gonna guess. She said to me, and just every person I've told about this has gone Oh, 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 that was the wrong thing to say to mummy. She said to me, I don't like football because I'm a girl. Oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. Wow. Others. I was like, what did you say? What was that? <laughs> and I was properly like, if anyone says that to you, that's nonsense. And you can tell them that. Even if it's a teacher, I don't care. You tell them that's nonsense. And I stand by that. I mean, too right. A perfectly cromulent opinion and correct. Isn't that worrying that a three and a half year old is saying that kind of shit to me already? Yeah. There's only one solution, Jen, and that is to not let her out of the house. No, that's that's really not a solution for anyone, <laughs> believe me. Coming up, I'm chatting to our resident psychotherapist, Jane Watson, about the overwhelm, what causes it, how to recognise it and how to stop feeling it. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I talked to Harpreet Chandy, a.k.a. Polar Preet, about role models, record breaking and polar exploration. And in Rated or Dated, shiny plastic things at the ready. Ooh. As we watch 1974's The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. But first, vaccinations, celebrations and cinematic specialist meets. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush! 
Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we can all rest easy that Boris Johnson is going to sign up to fight Russia. Fucking hell. My God, those pictures. Those pictures. There's no good points left to make about this, so I can only repeat points that I've seen other people make. He didn't sign up for any of the other wars (laughs) that we were involved in. And, as Ian Dunst said, he hid in a fridge to escape the media, so... I imagine him in his garden with Carrie with the iPhone out taking pictures for him and him being like, are you getting this? Are you getting this? Yeah, yeah, no, just over here. Yeah, yeah, have you got it? And she's there like, fucking hell, what have I done? So, Hannah, it's been a while since we talked about Brexit. Yeah. You forget about that, don't you? No. No, Jen, I just went through an airport. I don't forget about Brexit. Probably in the news every fucking day. It's just as other bigger stories. Anyway, I don't know if you saw the story in the uh, Times yesterday. Um, I didn't know. Right, so there's a story in the Times yesterday about how foreign students were being given backdoor entry to Britain's top universities. Basically, what's going on is foreign students are being offered places for far worse results than UK students, but this is on the basis that they pay a fuckload more in tuition fees to come to university here than home students do. Entirely predictably, the internet has managed to spin this into foreigners over here rather than research funding from Europe plummeting since Brexit and the Tories underfunding education for the last 13 years. Anyway. Well, quite... I am genuinely interested to know if there is one single good thing to have happened as a result of Brexit. Can you think of one? No. Blue passports don't count, Hannah, so you can't have that. Well, you do get stamps in your passports now, which as a slightly geeky person, I slightly enjoy. But that said, I'd rather have everything held back (laughs) and not have a stamp in my passport any day of the week. I'd rather have the ability to come and go in those countries as I please as opposed to a little marker of because fridge magnets as previously discussed. Anyway, if you can think of one, please at me. I genuinely want to know. But certainly it's not this. So food sector chiefs have told The Independent this week that specialist meats could begin disappearing from UK supermarkets because of costly new Brexit checks. Apparently, the government has been warned that extra red tape and inspections due to be imposed on meat and dairy imports as of April could cause supply problems to the likes of a cheeky bit of chorizo, my favourite, and uh, parma ham. Extra red tape? This isn't what we signed up for. (laughs) Industry chiefs say that costs associated with these changes may cause smaller EU suppliers to simply not bother. Wait, we're not that important on our own. This isn't what we signed up for. (laughs) If this wasn't bad enough, and the vegiles haven't been looking barren enough in the last few years already, the sector is also warning of supply issues with fruit and veg. First they came for our courgettes, Hannah. Fuck this shit. Still. Blue passports. I've got nothing. <laughs> so, Jen, I'd also like to get a few jabs in, but tish. <laughs> and this is a mix of good and bad news, so brace yourself. Sometimes in the same sentence. Let's start with the measles jab as the NHS urges families of the 3.4 million children under the age of 16 who remain unvaccinated against the disease to take action. The UK was declared measles free in 2016, which was probably one of the few good things that happened that year. But we've gone backwards since then. As just discussed, Jen, Mm. with one children's hospital in Birmingham treating 50 children with the disease last month. Wow. Families of unvaccinated children are being contacted, starting in London and the West Midlands, where the uptake of the MMR vaccine is at its lowest. A similar campaign last winter pushed up vaccinations by 10%. Now, I'm no medical expert, which you'd have learned if you listened to us during COVID. So I've taken this fact from the babe. Only 85% of children starting primary school in the UK have had both jabs well below the target of 95% needed to stop measles spreading. And this is from the NHS. In Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham and Nottingham, only 75% of five-year-olds are fully vaccinated. Let's hope that campaign works. Yeah, just to say that um, obviously Lyra has vaccinations at various points. She's Mm. just had her um, pre-school 
vaccinations because they have to have more when they're three and a half before they go to primary school. And my GP phoned us to invite us to basically a vaccination party. They were holding like kids discos on consecutive weekends to try and get people to come in and have their kids vaccinated. That is how shit the uptake is, basically. Wow. Yeah. Meanwhile, some better vaccination news. Jab number two, the interestingly named RTS, comma, S. Catchy. Is being... I've never seen one with a comma in it before. I, I have double-checked that is correct and not just a typo. Yeah. It's being given to babies to prevent malaria. The mass rollout of the world's first WHO-approved malaria vaccine has started in Cameroon and aims to vaccinate 250,000 children in 2024 and 25. This jab will be free to babies under six months and trials have shown it reduces malaria by 13%. Now that might sound low, but given that 80% of the 600,000 people killed every year by malaria are children, Mm. it means it will undoubtedly save many lives. Dr. Mohamed Abdulaziz, division head at the Africa Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, said it brings more than just hope. It brings a reduction in the mortality and morbidity associated with malaria. There are some supply issues, but it's hoped a second vaccine currently awaiting approval. Don't have the name, but I know it doesn't have a comma in it. (laughs) Could assist and potentially have a higher success rate. And for jab number three, we're back to the UK, where a new study from Public Health Scotland, in collaboration with the Universities of Strathclyde and Edinburgh, shows that no cervical cancer cases have been detected in fully vaccinated women following human papillomavirus immunisation at age 12 or 13 since the programme started in Scotland in 2008. None. That's rather incredible. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Minister for Public Health in Scotland, Jenny Minto, said, we welcome the findings of this report, which shows there have been no cases of cervical cancer detected today in fully vaccinated women who were given their first dose at age 12 or 13 years old. The HPV vaccine programme is having a huge impact on preventing those cancers for those who have been vaccinated. Vaccination and screening remain the most effective ways of preventing and detecting cervical cancer and I would encourage those eligible to come forward to have the vaccine or attend screening appointments. Because there is some bad news in here too as NHS chiefs are urging more teens to get the jab to wipe out cervical cancer after other figures revealed that one in five 15-year-olds are unvaccinated. Steve Russell, NHS Vaccines Director, said... There are over 50,000 girls and over 70,000 boys in year 10 who were unvaccinated against HPV. We're urging parents to consent to their children getting their HPV vaccines from nurses when they visit schools. With just one dose, now offering full protection to under 25s, it's easier than ever to ensure your child is fully protected. I don't know what that says about the West, that we've got answers Mm. and we're not we're not availing ourselves of them and in Africa they're crying out for solutions I'd be interested to see what like what groups are not getting vaccinated there is a bit of a stigma isn't there attached to the HPV vaccine because some people think well I mean it is something that can be um, transmitted via sex right so I think that there is a bit of a there is in some in some areas there is some stigma attached to it because it's associated with STIs or, or or whatever I think I don't know but yeah you're right I mean it does seem nuts to me why wouldn't you take it if it was being offered I don't know yeah but I'm very pro-vaccination so you know obviously we come from culturally a place that's more pro-vaccination than many people yeah. do so uh, you know pro-vaccination families and all of that it's just wild to think that if we could eradicate a woman's cancer god almighty mm. let's just do it yeah more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we're all Barbie girls in a Barbie world, oblivious yeah. to actual facts and completely disinterested in history. But we are yeah. just women after all. At least I think that's how the song went. Anyway, I don't want to go on too much about Barbie Oscar Gate because God knows I've done that on Twitter already in the last week. Just a few <laughs> points on this, if I may, Hannah. Please do. Number one, I'm not saying there's no value in the film. 
I don't think I was the target audience, but it's not a feminist masterpiece, not least because it gave all of the funny bits and good lines to its male characters, a.k.a. Ryan Gosling. Number two, both Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig have been nominated for Oscars in the Best Film and Best Adapted Screenplay categories, respectively. Number three, Best Picture but not Best Director, eh? Well, do do a bit of counting and also have a think about the nature of relativity. Number four, America Ferreira, remember her? Ryan Gosling's female counterpart is also nominated for an Oscar. Can I add? Of course, Hannah. Anything you want to add to this madness? (laughs) People saying, you know, Ryan Gosling was nominated and Margot Robbie wasn't, which is an indication of the sexism of the Oscars. I'm guessing that's what they were saying. They're not in the same category. Like I say, yes, relativity. It's it's, it's relative. Relative to the other performances, Margot Robbie wasn't good enough to get a nomination. Relative to the performances in his category, Ryan Gosling was. I don't actually think he was, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. I'm very surprised it got nominated for eight Oscars anyway, but whatevs. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't suck that there are more women directors nominated for Oscars, because, like, you know, it does. And I'm not saying that Gerwig doesn't deserve recognition for a stunning box office coup. But I am saying that the film was essentially produced by Mattel (laughs) to rehabilitate the image of an outdated sexist toy in order to sell more shit to little girls. So maybe we should pick our battles. I mean, there was like big names. Hillary Clinton was involved in this. Mm. Oh, that tweet. Oh my God, it made me feel physically sick, Hannah. Jesus fucking Christ. Anyway, but what would I know, hey? The independent, I'm just a woman after all. And what interest could I possibly have in the other big hitters like Oppenheimer? So... Here is my feminist hill to die on. In response to the piece the newspaper published a few weeks ago, actually, but I saw posted again last week, does Oppenheimer's Golden Globes win herald a troubling return to Hollywood's macho dad movie days? Oh, do fuck off. The three-hour biopic is quintessentially one for the guys, it continues. So, Hannah, as two women who have seen and enjoyed Oppenheimer, how do we begin to unpick this? Because I am absolutely flabbergasted that these lines have been committed to print. Look how excited I am that Masters of the Air is finally on the telly. I've been waiting for, like, two years. Love a bit of war and drama. You love a bit of history, yeah. I, I've got a history degree. We're both history fans, but no, dad. only dads like history. <laughs> only dads like history, Hannah. I won't hear anything else. Shall we talk about the mention of the film's length in that? Because three whole hours, I couldn't possibly concentrate on something for that long. Yeah. I'd be sure to start thinking about kittens yeah. or getting my nails done at some point. Unless, of course, it was really good, which Oppenheimer is. You know how I feel about long films. 90 minutes, that's all I really want. But Oppenheimer is that good. Yeah. I would allow it twice as long because it it can actually hold your attention. Anyway, now I realise there is a danger of sounding a bit pick me in all this. Barbie sucks and Oppenheimer is great. That's not what I'm saying. They have value in different ways and it is ridiculous to pit them against each other. They're such different films. And I know plenty of people of both sexes who have enjoyed both films. And indeed, I am one of them. My point is... It is actually inherently sexist to pit them against each other in this way in the first place. Yes, I fully agree. Oh, it made me angry. (laughs) Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by our resident psychotherapist, Jane Watson. Jane, hello. Hello, Mickey. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. I'm doing okay. I'm having a nice January. How about you? Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, not too bad. I don't sound convincing, do I? It's just because we were talking about how ill we've been. (laughs) I'm going to start on a celebratory note, actually. So listeners, you might not remember, but the last time Jane and I chatted, we were chatting about resolutions and Jane was going to try to get into cold water. And now what do you do? I swim in bodies of cold water weekly. There you go. Yeah, that's two years ago now. I actually did it. I started doing the cold showers after... We had that chat and I kept going and then I I entered a lake in July. <laughs> and then, yeah, I went through the winter. Yeah, she's officially a wild swimmer. Well done. I am. I'm one of them. 
got one of those robes and everything. Have you got a dry robe? Well, it, not dry robe TM, but a derivative of. <laughs> okay, if it was a dry robe TM, we were going to have to cut this call very short. We were, yes. <laughs> I'm aware of that. But no, it's great. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cold at the moment, as you can imagine. Yeah, I've decided to start running again and it's been pretty icy. Oh, I'd like to start running again. Yeah. Listeners, next time we chat to Jane, we'll find out whether she's like signed up to six <laughs> marathons or not, because that's the way she does stuff. So, Jane, the topic we're going to talk about this time is also sort of something that I think a lot of people will feel during January. We're going to talk about overwhelm, which oh. I am going to define it as that experience of feeling like there is just too much to handle. Oh. Obviously, it can be caused by a variety of factors time constraints, emotional stress, decision-making, information overload, relationship stuff, or, you know, a lovely mm -hmm, little jumbo of all of the above. <laughs> Is that how you would define the overwhelm? Yeah, I'd agree. It's essentially too much of everything, isn't it? Or it could even be one thing that's too much, you know. It, it, like you said, you could have information overload, you could have way too many things at the point where you sort of cease to function because there's so much to do. Or it might be something like, you know, someone's very ill that's close to you, you know, something you can't really escape, very bad news potentially Yeah, that's impacting you in that way. Yeah. It's kind of the manifestation of this sound. That's <laughs> kind of the Sounds overwhelm. like you've done it a few times now. I am no stranger to overwhelm. Is this something that people come and chat to you about? Yeah, yeah, it is. If people are studying, you know, like the pressure of coursework and getting things in, the pressure of home life, keeping a family going together, for sure. And, you know, more difficult things such as elderly parents dying and things like that. You know, this sense of, I can't cope, things are feeling too difficult. People start to feel it in a lot of different ways. They can feel it mentally by sort of almost shutting down you know like there's too much you can't even think about doing a thing because there's too many things sort of fighting for prominence yeah or that it's too difficult that you want to avoid it you know you want to put your head in the sand or you want to hide away hibernation <laughs> rather than confront it right yeah and is it something that you yourself have ever felt oh yeah for sure actually i was thinking about it I think lockdown made people feel more overwhelmed in a sort of global level as yeah, well, don't you think? You absolutely. Know, that experience was quite bizarre if you look back on it and how um, those first few weeks unfurled. A few years ago, one of my parents was very ill and going to die. I remember having a physical reaction to it. I don't know if you know what I mean, but I came out in hives all over my body. Mm. My whole body erupted because I guess I was facing something I didn't want to face. And I remember going to Boots and going, have you got anything for this? They were like, oh, have you tried not being stressed? <laughs> oh, do you not thought of that, Jane? What? Yeah, I know, right? And here's me trying to be a therapist, and um, I'd never thought of that. And uh, I just <laughs> remember kind of going, oh, my dad's dying. Um, okay. And then he shrugged. It's kind of funny, but kind of difficult, obviously. I suppose I was really thinking about that because your body can really react to being overwhelmed. You know, you can feel physically sick. You can feel distressed. You can get a headache. Your body is literally going, stop, something's happening here. And it's so hard as well, isn't it? Because the idea of stopping can feel overwhelming in itself because you're like, well, how am I going to get everything done? if I stop and take time out to try to deal with this. Yeah, and the thing is, but that's what you kind of need to do. But we're not in a world or a society where that's seen as a good thing, is it? But, you, you know, your body is going, putting the brakes on, essentially. Yeah. You know, stop, take a moment, look after yourself. But, yeah, we're in a world where we're told to keep going, aren't we? Stay on that treadmill, yeah. And also, you know, some people are quite good at doing self-care or giving themselves a bit of space when they need it. Some people aren't because of their history and how they were brought up. Maybe they were told to be little juggernauts forever, you know, like you've got to keep functioning, you've got to keep creating. 
know, some people really can't relax. It's physically painful for them, emotionally too, because it feels like they're doing something that's not allowed. Yeah, a guilt and a sort of shame attached to it, I think. And that's usually quite historic from maybe childhood when, say, a kid was pressured to be academic. And often we're not aware of these cues that we give ourselves because they're so automatic and unconscious. I think as well, a lot of the hints that you are overwhelmed and this could be the thing that is happening to you have crossovers with depression, anxiety, probably for women, the perimenopause. Yeah. So how do we recognise when it's overwhelm that we're dealing with? I suppose overwhelm is quite a blanket term, isn't it? It's quite an umbrella term. Maybe going back to what I said, because and on my own personal experience and also experience as a therapist, there's a book people are probably familiar with because it was in the Amazon charts quite a lot during the lockdown, was The Body Keeps the School by someone called Bess Van Kolk. And the title of the book says it all body does keep the school our bodies do tell us when we're not coping when we need to take stock when we need to stand back also our minds you know like you might start to forget things you might struggle to retain information or or function it's sort of almost the classic warning signs of there would be a breakdown of sort of some sort of break in a way and what it is is it's your body's going you need to do something differently there <laughs> something's not right and I am telling you. I think we're just so, you said this earlier, but just to reiterate, we're so accustomed to a lack of time and information overload that it does get harder to listen to our bodies and to slow down for that moment. We don't listen to our bodies. We often don't and that's the problem. Then we sort of can start to sort of drive ourselves further into the ground because we're trying to override what our body and our mind are telling us. Which is, we need to take a pause and see what's happening here. As a sort of physician heal thyself uh, <laughs> idea, do you have two minute, three minute, whatever sort of time schedule each day where you check in with yourself? Is that an exercise that you do or recommend to your patients? I certainly recommend if people are feeling overwhelmed, doing things like grounding exercises. Give us an example of one of them. Oh, so there's breathing's quite useful. I mean, in general. <laughs> do do that. Box breathing. So, you know, if you're feeling stressed or panicked, breathe in for four seconds. Up. Hold for four seconds. Across. I'm drawing a box, by the way. Great for a podcast. <laughs> Out for four seconds and hold. And do that a few times. It kind of impacts our nervous system. There's a lot of talk about polyvagal theory, uh, which is sort of a, the vagus nerve in our body and how that impacts how we feel and how we operate and the states that we can find ourselves in. And we can change our nervous states, if you will, through breathing, exercise, grounding exercises and movement. I do something called EMDR too, don't I? I'm a, like a trauma therapy and I went to a conference and there was a very energetic presenter on who was trying to talk to us about this change in sort of nervous energy and autonomic state. And she started to get us to all harm and sort of wiggle. I was feeling incredibly resistant to doing any of this, obviously. <laughs> um, but what it demonstrated quite well was that even if you're kind of quite a misery about these things, if you start to move around and sort of twist around and harm and and make movements, you do start to change the energy in your body. You do start to impact your nervous system. Occasionally, I might hear things that might feel quite difficult to hear. I often feel like I need to get back in my body. So I will get up and move or, you know, do some jumping even. Just try and kind of get a different energy in my body. And it really does have an impact in how you're feeling. Sometimes when you're feeling overwhelmed you can feel like you're not really in the room you can feel like you're not really present so it's quite good to just stop picking apart what's in a room you know like who'd say to you talk me through one of the pictures on your wall what are the colors the minutiae you know uh-huh. and what that does is it sort of brings you in the present i think sometimes when we get overwhelmed especially if there's something in the past or something we're worried about we almost sort of leave the present. Yeah, that's really interesting. Walking around, 
your feet on the floor, wiggling, humming, humming's good, you know, things like that. I love that wiggling is the answer that we've all been Wigg- searching for. I know, for. right? I can't <laughs> believe I'm saying it. I remember going, right. This is why I like talking to you, Jane, because you're quite resistant to woo-woo or what I would term woo-woo. Very but annoyingly, some of it does but work. But it's sort of right, you see. I want to take us outside of the things that are internal overwhelm, the stuff that actually if we stop and listen to our bodies, we know the call is coming from inside the building. And I want to talk about external overwhelm because obviously things happening in our own lives have huge effects on us. But there's also stuff outside of our own lives isn't immediately specifically happening to us but does affect us massively you know like what's happening in gaza the taliban's treatment of women in afghanistan basically the news is what i'm talking about right how do we deal with that right well again i i think the world we're in doesn't help as in uh, in general but also in the way we get information it's there immediately Mm. certainly something i've come across as well Stone, I can't switch off from world events, can't switch off from the news. I suppose the solution really is to do that. You need to give yourself, you know, an information break. If you're doom scrolling, which what you end up doing, isn't it, when you get kind of fixated on something awful, don't do it. I know, I know that's quite hard to actually invoke, but you almost need to give yourself a social media break. Yeah. I'm not saying don't read up on stuff, don't be informed. But if you're kind of just causing yourself high levels of distress and you're reading more and more, I would suggest it's probably time to have a bit of time out with your phone. I can do that sometimes. I have to do it. Obviously, we talk about the news, so there's a lot of heads in books about awful stuff and you will hear awful things too. So I do try to switch off at the weekend. I don't tend to look at stuff. But sometimes when I switch off, there's a real guilt to that because the people going through it cannot switch off and I'm, I'm aware of that. It's almost as bad not to be looking at it because I feel guilty for not looking at it. Yeah, I mean, there's no denying that we are lucky where we are, right? And other people are patently not. You know, I used to work in uh, services that work with people from from war zones and refugee backgrounds. And there is this thing about feeling this sort of level of guilt that you're not in that position and who are you to sort of kind of complain, really? Mm. But I think you've got to keep yourself well as well. You know, you're you're not in charge of the government. I'm not saying don't do anything. There are things you can do to kind of engage and support volunteer or refugee service. or You know, like there are things you could do if you felt passionate enough to help and support something. But... Just feeding yourself the constant horror will have quite a negative effect on you sort of incrementally. So take a moment from your phone, have a wiggle, reset, and then think about practical things you can do instead of just doom scrolling, right? Yeah, and also, you know, kind of coming full circle to me, leaping into a body of water, which is a beautiful image. I'm sure you'll agree. I'm having a lovely time. (laughs) Well, um, I think it's important... You know, do nice things. Do things that give you a bit of joy. Going out and walking in the forest or going for a swim, reading a nice book, giving yourself just a little bit of space to enjoy something that's not particularly thought about, just being in that moment. Yeah, and I think also, particularly with your example of going while swimming, putting yourself in that cold water, and the thing I do if I'm stressed or depressed or just as something that I really love doing, I love the gym, I love lifting heavy weights, I love circus stuff. So I'm very in my body at that point and yeah. it is really good for us. I think when you can kind of get overwhelmed and withdraw and try and hide from things, that's when things can get worse. You still need to make contact with yourself in the here and now, have space for your own moments of pleasure and reach out. Be in connection with others as well, because the danger of overwhelm is that one can completely withdraw from everything. Yeah. But what you've essentially got to do is kind of work through it. Jane, thank you very much for, well, for introducing me to the power of the wiggle. That's my main takeaway from this. The lovely time. <laughs> you know, if you put your hand on your chest and one on your abdomen, you know, if you're feeling stressed, like feel it, 
Mm-hmm. And um, we're both doing this at the moment. This I know. Just breathe in and take deep breaths. That can feel quite good too. Good. Lots of grounding techniques. Very helpful if you're feeling quite stressed and panicked, overwhelmed. Where can people find you on the socials if they want to, you know, book an appointment or see what else you're talking about? I'm only on Facebook. I remove myself from Twitter, so I'm just not um, really on anything, really. That's one way of dealing with overwhelm, isn't it? Get the fuck off Um, us. Well, yeah, do you know what? I mean, that is why I did it. So, yeah, I I think it's called Jane Watson Therapy. It's a Facebook page. And I've got a a website that you would be able to see that I built myself if you find it. (laughs) Thank you so much for chatting with me. No problem. Always a pleasure. See you at the lake soon. No. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Harpreet Chandy, adventurer and physiotherapist, who I'm speaking to, I'm delighted to say, live from Antarctica. I think this is a standard issue first. Preet, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Preet, you have already achieved two Guinness World Records for polar exploration and you've just become the world's fastest woman to complete a solo unsupported ski expedition to the South Pole. Congratulations, how are you feeling? I'm pretty good, a little bit tired but I think that's to be expected. <laughs> yeah. How how are your digits, all your toes intact? Yeah, digits, toes are all okay and like my last trip was difficult that this one went pretty smoothly so it's really nice this is my third trip in Antarctica in a row Um, and when I say in a row I mean like for the season so the Antarctic season runs from November to January and I've done two seasons in a row I didn't know much about Antarctica at all I just knew I wanted to do something big and then I remember somebody saying what about Antarctica I was like no way I don't know anything about it and then started to learn and thought it'd be really cool and amazing to do something that I didn't know much about to show that everyone starts somewhere. So I um, I started looking into it. basically decided that I wanted to do a partial crossing of the continent, started doing a load of training, put my application into the logistics company, who are basically like my medical and logistical support on the ground. They rejected my application because I didn't have enough experience. So that's what brought me to doing the first one. So the first trip I did was kind of like phase one for me, like a trip, well, I said training trip, it was a big trip on its own, but it was solo and support of 700 miles to the pole. And that went, you know, decent and pretty well. And so I came back, went straight back to work and around work, trying to train, get funding, everything else, took unpaid leave from the army. And I came in to attempt that, that partial crossing that I wanted to do, uh, which is the hardest thing I've ever done. It was 70 days on the ice, 922 miles, and I was about just over 100 miles away from my finish point, so I didn't make it. And it was probably the first time I've pushed past my limits, I think. Um, it was incredibly challenging. I lost 20 kilograms. I sustained an injury on my calf, which I had to have surgery on in February, and took me, I think, over six months to recover from it. I remember coming and thinking, no way am I going back again this season. And this was just, I mean, this is end of January um, last year. So it was, yeah, it was unbelievably tough. And I'm not really one to exaggerate. And, like, I look back at it now and, you know, photos and stuff of myself. And it was, um, yeah... And and then the decision to do this one, I think probably from the summer when I started to feel better and I thought, you know, what if could I? And obviously I didn't announce it um, anywhere. And I'm glad I didn't. I think that was a lot less pressure. And it's hard. Like, it's hard to manage my full-time job. And then, you know, you're taking, you don't make any money from those, these trips. I literally take unpaid leave from work. I started my career break from the army in November. So again, it's period of unpaid leave and I just had this thing in my head like oh, I wonder if I could do it um so <laughs> I'm pretty I'm a pretty determined and motivated person so I thought I would try 
and and you know I'm not I'm definitely no born skier at all so whether or not I was going to achieve it was you know I'm not sure so I I mean a lot of people have helped me get here someone who didn't know anything about this world like you have to learn um, and I've learned from like literally so many people um, and I think you know my success is a credit to all of them really because I've got here and then this trip like it went so smoothly like I didn't really have many issues and I mean I skied 12 13 hours a day but the last trip the last 14 days I was doing like 24 25 hours a day and because it's a 24 hour day like you can you can kind of get away with like persuading yourself that it's still it's still like normal hours so it's you know, I think I owe this success to the last trip, which I call a failure. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Like a lot of people will say, oh, it's not a failure. But I think it's really important, to be honest. So I failed to meet my goal last time. And that's okay. Like I, I pushed myself beyond my limits, hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It's okay. You know, it's okay to, to have that failure. I've got, I still got, oh, I got two Guinness World Records for the last trip. And it was, um, yeah, everything about it was challenging. And I don't think this trip, I've done this trip or, or been successful in this trip if I, if I didn't have to do it. Is this completely unsupported? Did you do it on your own? Yes. So I am dropped off uh, at my start point um, and then, you know, wave goodbye to the pilot and then that's it. And I'm on my own. Uh, so solo unsupported. So basically I have a satellite phone with me mm-hmm. and I check in with the company every evening at a time that was like pre-chosen so for me it was 9.30 basically to tell them one I'm safe and this is where I am I'm okay and I I do that call at 9.30 in the evening Um, yeah other than that uh, nothing else I did thing, um, I think it was 2015, I cycled across the US, like 2,500 miles across the US by myself. Like, it's kind of incomparable because obviously there there are other people around, which is, in, in some respects, that's the frightening thing, right, having other people around. You know, towards the end of it, I really got in my own head about it and I was like... I am probably going to die out here. <laughs> that's probably what's going to happen to me. And people put like this idea in my head that something bad would happen to me. And how do you manage yourself from a sort of mental perspective? Because I imagine you must have times when you're out there by yourself where you're thinking like, oh, shit, like what what's going to happen? I think also, like from what people have said to you, I think people often project their own fears yes. onto you. And sometimes it can be really to deal with because, you know, some people, a lot of people, like that trip sounds amazing that you did. A lot of people don't literally don't you know have never heard of anything like that or done anything like that so straight away they go to the worst and it can be really difficult to have to deal with that as well and I think for me if I'm honest again it goes back to the last trip the last trip I was not in a good place like mentally I was probably in the worst place I've ever been and bearing in mind for the last I don't know I constantly know I'm behind time so continuing to go when you know you think you're not going to meet your end it's really hard and mentally very difficult. And, you know, even the first trip I did out here, I think mentally for me, I've, I've always been discouraged to push my boundaries. I've always been, like, encouraged to stay in this box and, you know, told that this is the stuff I, I'm supposed to do. And when I didn't, I was called disrespectful, the rebellious one, etc., etc. And I think for me, like, came out as angry and it used to really frustrate me that... People always went out of their way to to stop me, and, and it made things hard. You know, it's already hard to go and do stuff like this anyway. So then to have people who are close to you make it harder is really frustrating. And I found that I just couldn't get away from those feelings of like frustration and anger. First trip, I remember, I just couldn't I couldn't get away from it. It was like this mental prison. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't like distract myself. I couldn't, and then. I finished that trip and I remember thinking to myself, right, I've got to talk to someone professionally and just help myself through so that I don't end up in that position. And obviously I come back, I go straight back to a full-time job and then I'm trying to raise money and train for the second expedition all, like, you know, 
outside of work hours. So obviously, and that's, you know, it's an excuse as well that I then didn't speak to someone. And lo and behold, I had the same issue the second time round. And then I did actually speak to someone. And I'm, I'm still speaking to someone professionally as well to try and help myself through that because it's not great. I think early years, I remember being told I wasn't smart enough to get into university and, you know, a lot of different things. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Maybe it was a driver for me, like, to begin with, but it's not a it's not a great driver. It doesn't help. And also, these trips, are, it's not about those people and it's bigger than them. So, yeah, I think mentally it can be a different ballgame. It's like your deepest, darkest thoughts come to you and you just mm. can't get away from them. And I think in day-to-day life, I think... You know, a lot of people distract themselves. They do something different. You know, I'd, I'd watch something on TV. I'd go for a run. I'd speak to a mate, and I'd distract myself. Not necessarily knowingly. That's what I'm doing. And while I've been here on these trips, and I'm sure you experience as well, you just can't get away from your own mind. It's interesting. Some of the stuff you've said there, I think, probably touches on this a little bit. But like these kind of pursuits. I would say the sort of things that I kind of tend to associate with rich white men. So as a woman of South Asian heritage, I imagine you won't have come across many women from a similar background or, you know, or who look like you doing this kind of thing. I mean, I'm very happy to be proven wrong on that point. Am I wrong? Or or like who inspired you when you were younger and starting out with this kind of thing? Who did you look to for inspiration? I'll be honest, I think I grew up knowing that I didn't want to be like a lot of people around me. I didn't grow up with role models, but I, one thing that sticks in my head is I remember when my niece was born, and I remember thinking, I want this little girl to grow up knowing she can do anything. Like, she's 12 now, and me and her, you know, we basically started doing our adventures together, and nobody else was allowed, because... I knew everyone else would be like, I don't know, annoying and be like, oh no, she's going to be okay. And so it's just always me and her from probably the age of like two or three. I still remember taking her camping in my in my mum's back garden when she was four. And everyone in the family was like, oh, she's going to be okay. Don't lock her in the tent. And I remember being really annoyed about it. But the thing is, I have to remind myself that when you're doing something that's so different, people always question it. Like the first time I ever went camping, I was 19 with the army. I didn't even tell my family when I joined the army um, and a lot of people weren't happy about it so I think for me it's it's, it's my niece that inspires me I want to I want to be better and I want to do more so that she has someone to look up to so that she knows that she can do anything and you know I get that this is an ad- adventure space but I want it to be anything you know I want like even if you don't see anybody that looks like you doing something or like it's a little bit different, that's okay. I didn't know who Shackleton, Armisen and Scott were. I remember feeling so embarrassed when people would ask me and I would just be like, yeah, like I have no idea. But that's okay. Like, you know, I came from a different space. Like I didn't grow up reading their books or know their stories. And, and that's okay. It's okay to not have followed the same path as everyone else. And don't get me wrong, like now, you know, I do see more people coming up, like even in Union Glacier, I see, you know, women from different backgrounds, like coming up to uh, climb Mount Vincent, one of the mountains here, and, and do like the last degree, which is the, the last 70 miles to the pole. And it's, it's amazing to see, like it really is. And I mean, God, I can't even count the amount of times I was told, but you don't look like a polar explorer before I did my first trip. And I would, you know, tell people this is what I was training for. But, you know, end of day, what does polar explorer look like? What does an engineer, a teacher, a pilot look like? Surely they could look like anything. Because for me, I feel like it's just, it's bigger. It's so much bigger than just me. And I'll be honest, I think it drives me. Like, I genuinely feel like I can make some kind of impact. And I just, I mean, I think of Simran, who's my niece. So my sled is always named after Simran. And we we still do our own trips each year. So um, they're getting a bit bigger. So last year we went to Amsterdam, me and her, for two nights. Uh, and this year we'll go somewhere else in Europe, just me and her. And I love that relationship that I have with her. Um, and it, like I said, it doesn't have to be adventure, just whatever it is, scary to do new things. You know, I took, well, I, I just about persuaded my mum to take, like, that I was going to take her up Snowden last year. And she should make it to the top. She's about an hour and a half from the top. But I was so proud she came. Like, it's that 
in itself is such a huge deal that yeah. she came with me. How does your brother feel about you sort of acting as inspiration to your 12-year-old niece? Does he does he get like, oh, God, don't put ideas in her head? Or is he like, no, go for it, brilliant, the sky's the limit? You know what? I think he's grown too, which is amazing. Like, I remember doing adventures with her early on and I love my like I'm really close to my brothers it's probably like one of the closest relationships I've had growing up with both of them I remember I'd get really annoyed by him because he'd like call me constantly and and I think he's grown loads too do you know what I mean like Mm. I've seen his attitude change to it I think from what I've done so that's really nice after I did the first trip like I saw family members just helping me in ways like for example you know I'd be driving through Derby and like my mum will make sure like packed sandwiches or <laughs> chapatis or something for everyone just helps in, in their own way which is really nice and then wider family it's just a mixture to be honest like some people are amazing and you know super proud others just don't acknowledge that I've ever been anywhere so it's um it's a huge mixture <laughs> So in your day job, you've you've spoken about a bit, you're, you're a physiotherapist in the British Army, which I, am, yeah. I imagine comes in handy in challenges such as these. <laughs> has it helped you prepare in any other ways? Yeah, I think it has, to be honest. So I always say to people, so I didn't have this idea from the Army, and obviously I took unpaid leave from the Army to do it. However, I don't think I would have had the idea in the first place if I hadn't been in, because at the end of the day, I joined when I was 19, when I had never been camping, you know, I didn't, like, the skills I've learned are really invaluable. I remember doing my first ever polar training course, and, you know, we do, like, navigation, put tents up, and I thought I'm starting as a complete novice. But at the end of the day, I knew how to navigate. You know, mm. I, like, I hadn't done it in positions before, but I, I'd used a compass before, I'd used a map before, and you had to put up a tent. You know, yes, I hadn't done it on snow before, but, you know, you learn those bits. So I think there were so many crossover skills I had I think my background I think that's all definitely helped what an incredible achievement what next how do you follow this up that's a good question well it's what's funny is after the last one I was like I'm definitely not going back to anything else (laughs) (laughs) at the time yeah um I um, I have actually started my career break from the army now so uh which is nice it means I um, I'm not going back to work for a little while so I don't know exactly what's next however I can't imagine there not being anything so yeah I haven't got any solid plans but I'm I'm sure there'll be something I just need to figure out what that will be okay so watch this space then so where can we follow you pre on your social media so we can follow you and whatever you get up to next Everything's on Polar Preet, so it's just Polar and my name Preet, uh, which I came up with a few years ago. Obviously, I didn't post anything about this trip at all because, um, yeah, it was all quiet until I finished, but I'm sure I will uh, post whatever training and whatever I decide to do next. Preet, congratulations. What an incredible achievement. And thank you so much for chatting to me from Antarctica, no less. <laughs> Very exciting. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. It's lovely to chat to you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film in which I would again fail the upper body strength test <laughs> did we watch this week? Dystopia Bingo is back. This week we watched 1974's fantasy adventure The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Let's get a big old dated out of the way at the top. I don't think John Philip Law, the set of cheekbones playing Sinbad, is from the Middle East. I also don't think British actor Tom Baker is from the Middle East. Directed by Gordon Hessler, more famous for his TV movies, this particular Sinbad the Sailor's Tale has the tagline, Sinbad battles the creatures of legend, which means hello Ray Harryhausen, stop-motion animation pioneer and absolute god of my childhood. It takes a while for the Harryhausens to come into their own, but when they do, we're treated to a one-eyed centaur, a griffin, an enchanted ship's figurehead, a six-armed living statue of the goddess Kali, and a couple of homunculus. Homunculi? Homunculus. Homunculus. <laughs> I can only say it the way Jeff Tipps says it. It's like in my brain now. <laughs> it's an homunculus. Based on the Arabian Nights tale of Sinbad the Sailor, it is the second of three Sinbad films released by Columbia Pictures, 
The others being 1958's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. What a weird number to kick in on. Yeah. What was one to six? What was he up to then? Was he practising? We'll never know. And 1977's Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, in which the legendary sailor fights Rocky and Mr T to become heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> Actually, that's not what happens. But Hannah, that uh-huh. is the one where a woman turns into a bird. And yes, <laughs> I knew better. I knew I'd seen it somewhere. <laughs> Its silliness is part of the golden voyage of Sinbad's charm, award-winning charm at that. It bagged the very first Saturn Award for Best Fantasy Film. It also made $11 million from its $2 million budget, a sum not to be sniffed at. Hannah, Jen, is this film a flashback to your school holidays? Nope. (laughs) Saturday Morning Pictures is all I kept thinking of when... I don't know if I specifically saw it at Saturday Morning Pictures, but I feel like I did. It's got that vibe to it yeah so at the cinema yeah oh that's quite exciting well no saturday morning pictures was just basically your mum put you in there so she could go shopping and they showed you just something shit and charged her about i don't know 10 pay or something but you know you saw stuff on the big screen i'm still excited i'll never be upset by 80s childcare. it's all fine jen you said no very quickly not anything that you'd seen before no i don't think i'd seen i like the shunkiness We'll put a pin in the uh, full discussion around this, but the shonkiness of the special effects seems familiar. But I don't think I'd ever seen any of the Harryhausen films before the one we watched before, which I can't remember. Clash of the Titans. Okay, let's get back to this one. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad is, as previously noted, very silly, with a plot that makes a single piece of paper look fat. (laughs) A bat dragon bird, we're not sure, I think it's a homunculus, drops a Christmas decoration onto a ship. Choosing not to heed his crew's warning to throw what's clearly a bad luck talisman overboard, but instead putting it around his neck, Captain Sinbad starts having weird visions of bad belly dancing. There's a massive storm which throws the ship off course and into an adventure! Yes. (laughs) Now, Sinbad is a glass half full kind of guy, where one man sees danger of death, Sinbad sees the possibility of great riches. And so when Sinbad meets a golden-masked man who tells him the amulet is part of a puzzle and that the three pieces joined together reveal a map showing the way to the fabled fountain of destiny on the lost continent of Lemuria, he is balls to the walls excited to get going. (laughs) Also, the bad belly dancer that haunts Sinbad turns out to be a real human woman, played by Catherine Munro. She's even got an intriguing tattoo which is shit, but still isn't even in my top ten of worst tattoos I've ever seen. (laughs) She's currently a slave, but Sinbad fancies her, so he does a deal with her owner, frees her, and immediately orders her to fix him a drink. Does she have a personality? (laughs) Not sure, but she sure is pretty. He does say please, though. Eventually, it takes a while for him to pop his little head around the corner. Sorry, you're not a slave anymore, are you? Please. Lovely. I love the way he says, I have freed you on this boat. (laughs) It's basically a floating prison, but you are free. (laughs) Full of horny men. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, this is no plain sailing journey. Directions to the fountain come courtesy of an oracle scripted by Judith Butler. And the prize for whoever takes the three pieces of amulet to the fountain, youth, a shield of darkness and a crown of untold riches, has also tickled the pickle of an evil magician. Is there any other kind? called Kura and played by Tom Baker and a jar of Bovril. Will Sinbad get from Island A to City B to Secret Cave C before this nefarious bastard? Or just at the same time so they can have a fight? You guessed it. But who will win that fight? You guessed it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's quite light on plot, right? Oh, oh I yes. don't know. Um, yes, no, it is, yeah. And that plot is explained in these sort of huge great chunks. I mean, there's some wonderful exposition as well. There really is. But let's start with the stop motion animation. I know you're chomping at the bit. And I feel like I'm going, I might be on my own here. But it still transports me. And I would absolutely take some clunky Harryhausen over bad CGI any day of the week. What about you two? I I agree. In fact, I really like two of these. I think two of these are probably my favourite Harryhausen. I really like the figurehead. Uh, the wooden figurehead is brilliant. Uh, and the the dancing statue is yeah, brilliant. Yeah, Carly. And I really like the mechanical clunk sound it makes every time her arms change positions. Yeah. I like them. It's not good, but like, obviously like, only a monster would prefer bad CGI to this. Like, come on, this is 
there's something very um familiar and like nostalgic and like I don't know it's just it's nice isn't it what I loved absolutely loved was when they first discover the Kuro's spy the monkey bat dragon thing also I love the guy with the with the gold mask he's very Game of Thrones it's very nightmare <laughs> very nightmare <laughs> oh no you've turned left into a hole <laughs> you don't but when they first see the the funny thing and he goes to catch it and it, like I don't know, it turns into ashes or some shit. With the glacial speed at which it moves, and yet they are both like two of them with swords, unable to catch him. It's just I love it. It made me laugh that they were pulling out the chest. <laughs> I don't know why. But just, <laughs> and they both had their swords like down the back of it. Like yeah. fair play, that's what I'd have done if it was like a spider or something. <laughs> just like get a broom and stick it down there. Lovely stuff. It was more like they'd lost the remote control than a threat to their lives, wasn't it? <laughs> just, yeah. It was so casual. Can we talk about what a swinging dick Timbad is? <laughs> sure. So when he just goes, I'll keep it, about that, and when they're all like, throw it at the sea, Martin Shaw said, throw it at the sea, and he says, I'll keep it. I was just like, this guy is a prick, and then everything that he <laughs> yeah. does for the rest of it. But I think he really peaks when he goes through all of that stuff and then they get the head to come up, the oracle to come up and speak to them. And the oracle says one line and already he's talking to the people that he's with and he goes, this guy just talks in riddles. I was like, listen to him. You've gone through all of this to hear what he says and already you're like heckling. Absolutely. But, you know, comes good at the end, Hannah, doesn't keep the crown for himself. He's learned something about himself. Keeps the woman for herself, though, didn't he? Yeah. I love the bit where, right at the beginning, where he encounters the guy on the horse. He's like, oh, I want that thing on your neck. And he's like, I don't think I'll give it to you, mate. And then he goes up to the guy on the horse and he just goes, like, at the horse uh-huh. with his hands. Like, that's his fighting mechanism. He just goes and waves his hands in the face. It's, but it's that, fantastic. I mean, that would work on a horse. Though. I mean, like, a, a carrier bag would work yeah, on a horse. Totally. But it just made me laugh. I wasn't expecting it. Mickey, going back to what you said about him giving the crown away, he doesn't need all the power in the world. He can already bend metal with his bare hands. It's very strong, Hannah. He, like, pulls up that thing, and he's like, oh, yeah, let's just get that and make an arrow. It's, yeah, it's incredible. I have a theory about this. I read that apparently 37 million people in Russia watched this. Wow. The Russians apparently fucking loved this film. And the minute I read that, I thought, it's interesting, because I'd written down Cold War analogy. This is deep. And I think the idea that there's this thing that's power, right? And one person wants it, the bad guys, let's say, they want the power. And the other guys perceive that they only want the power to stop the other guy getting the it's power. It's preventative, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of the analogy of uh, of what Russia and America were doing in the Cold War. Thank you so much for going so deep into yeah. the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Hannah, because I, I wasn't willing to. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is, when I saw that the Russians bloody love this film, I thought maybe that's why. I think, yeah, I mean, your your theory's been vindicated. Thank you. Mm. I, I enjoyed it. Joe's <laughs> literally just fallen asleep next to me listening to that. There's not many women in it, guys. There's not many women. Plenty of boobs, though. Yeah. Loads of bo- well, just her boobs mm. on repeat, I suppose. She's got a lot of very small tops, hasn't she? Yeah, they're very tiny, aren't they? Do you think that's why she's such a bad belly dancer? Because she's just so restricted, very, she very can't breathe. Very restricted in her movement. Yeah. Uh, but um, I suppose that's sort of the point of her, isn't it? Um, that's what he says, doesn't he? He says, she's very curvaceous or something like that. And um, Amanda says <laughs> about it. She's a slave. She's yeah. very curvaceous. I don't know what that accent was, but then neither did they. They didn't know what their accents were either. So fair play to me. It was spot on. Yeah. Absolutely loved Martin Shaw's hair and tash. Sorry, this is a tangent, but <laughs> just the way they're just like, well, it's the 70s, whatever. We're not going to bother. You just keep it, Martin. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it did make me laugh quite a lot, which surprised me. Haroon ends up being quite funny when he says, I have a very brave heart, but cowardly legs. That would make me laugh a lot. <laughs> the opening made me laugh. Do they say at the opening? I wrote this down just for the very first second I was laughing. It said, A fine, clear morning and all is well. Yes. <laughs> so that was like me. That was me opening the door into 2023. It's a fine, clear morning <laughs> and all is well. As long as I don't wear an unlucky amulet, we should be fine, Lance. 
<laughs> Nothing could possibly go wrong. Isn't don't they say at the beginning that that thing is an albatross? They can't work out what it is. Yeah, they thought it might they be. Don't know what it is. It's an albatross. It's a dragon. It's, it's a monkey. Yeah, I guess so. But he seems to be having a lovely time, Jen. Yeah, it's what he it's lives for. But then he doesn't worry about having a woman on board, which is it's supposed also to be very bad, bad luck. luck. I thought he was going to get told off for yeah. that, but he doesn't. Also. He likes her, but he doesn't half put her in like positions of danger, particularly yeah. when that tattoo comes into his. When that <laughs> tattoo they crayoned on comes into his. Hand, say. That is lols. The tattoo drawn on her hand by my daughter. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> and seen in that art gallery, Hannah visited in Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might make my top five worst tattoos I've ever seen, but it's it's not a real tattoo. Sorry, spoiler, it's not a real tattoo. The worst tattoo I've ever seen remains a sort of cartoon sketch of Michael Jackson with the words underneath that just said, he touched so many, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. I used to work with a guy who had Middlesbrough tattooed on his arm and it was spelt incorrectly. Amazing, yeah. My yeah. second favourite is No Regrets, which someone got tattooed on to oh. their arm. Any tattoo of a face, I'm thinking Terrifying. <laughs> Any Absolutely <tattoo>. terrifying. <laughs> Particularly babies' faces. Yeah. I suppose you have already mentioned it, but just for the sake of, uh, you know, the times we live in, I should also say that black face is fucking terrible. Or that brown face brown is fucking face. terrible. Brown yeah. face, yeah. That is, it's awful. They're all in it. I did a little bit of research. All of them, brown face. Yeah, sort of mucky, basically, is what they've done, isn't it? It's uh, Brady Browning. It's, yeah, it's not It's not great. What about the, the ageing effects, the makeup effects? Because Tom Baker is the evil wizard. Then whenever he uses his power, it ages him. It doesn't half take away his life force. And, you know, sometimes I feel like that after, like, I don't know, <laughs> hoovering. But, yeah, and he ages really rapidly. But, Master, your hand, and his hand is all withered. I didn't think it was that bad. And, and, and on the, like, scale of effects on this film, but I thought that the ageing was one of the better ones, actually. I agree. And every time he aged, he looked less racist because they clearly forgot to put the brown makeup on on the top of it. Can't do all of it. Come on. Look, it is a very, very silly film. I have enjoyed talking about it because I feel like we all had a nice time watching it. But of course, the big question is... (laughs) The big question. Ooh, I'm on tenterhooks. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, (laughs) rated or dated? Even the name, Mickey. Yeah, it's, it's horribly, horribly dated, but... As ever with uh, Harry, I say as ever. I've only watched one other. Um, yeah, I had a nice time. It was it was entertaining. Yeah, I mean it's nostalgic and fun, and I like the creatures. But yeah, I mean it's dated as fuck. Very dated indeed. But I'm no regrets when it comes to my choice. <laughs> Who's up next? What are we watching? It's me next, and we are going to be watching a proper Generation X film. That's pretty culty, but I have never seen. Reality Bites. Oh, I have never seen it either. Me either. Standard Issue for All Women.